This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Robin Hansen, I know from reading your new book that you want me to brag about you in the intro, but your brain has deceived you into believing that you don't. And I want to brag about you as a way of building rapport and associating myself with a high intelligence, high status person such as yourself, though I would rather not admit it. So let's just give both of our brains what they really want. Robin Hansen is one of the most provocative and prolific thinkers around. Uh, evidenced his, his being prolific anyway by the fact that it was not long ago he was on here talking about his previous book, The Age of M, on a possible future with human-like artificial intelligence. He's written for many years at the Exceptional Overcoming Bias blog and is a ruthless researcher on the human mind and its propensity to get things wrong. His new book, The Elephant in the Brain, is a deep dive into subconscious self-deception and a guide to busting out of our own brains bullshit. Robin, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, I, I, I probably, my brain does want the things you uh, said it does want, but it just doesn't want to openly acknowledge it. So uh, <laughs> yes. I, I just have to deny it here, I think is this the key thing to get it happening. That's the, and that's really the thread throughout this book that, um, I mean, it's so, it's so fascinating. It's at once like, yes, this is so obviously true and so uncomfortable in various sections of the book. So get, tell us a little bit first, just break down the title, The Elephant in the Brain. Uh, where's that come from and what do you mean by it? So The Elephant in the Room, as we all know, is a topic or a fact that we all are aware of, but we don't want to talk about. It's obvious if you look at it, but we'd rather just pretend it's not there. So the elephant in our brain is the part of ourselves and our thinking that we'd rather not admit or pay attention to, even though it's pretty obvious if you look at it. And that elephant in our brain is our selfish motives. Uh, we don't like to admit that the main drives of much of our behavior is relatively selfish. And if we can, we'd like to attribute our behavior to nice pro-social motives. And... Tell me about the process of writing this book, because a lot of the themes in here, um, there are things that you've kind of written about. I mean, you're, you know, overcoming bias has a lot of similar themes, um, but you and your co-author, Kevin, you know, what, what sort of made you decide to do this? And then sort of a secondary question, I'm always curious about people's writing processes, because as I mentioned, it wasn't that long ago your other book came out. So how fast did you write this thing? Well, both books were being written in parallel. <laughs> And this book was being written with a co-author, so that explains a lot of the ability to get both books out uh, near only a year and a half apart. Uh, you know, we were working on them both for a while, and my co-author deserves uh, more credit than I for the overall uh, quality of the writing and engagement. Um, and I'm honored to have been uh, had him as a co-author. Now, the, the key choice of the book is the scope. So. Uh, about the first third of the book is reviewing overall uh, human behavior and why we might have uh, motives and, and not be aware of them. The last two thirds of the book go into 10 different specific areas. In each area, we say there's a usual standard story of our motive. There are a bunch of puzzles that don't make sense from that point of view. And then there's the alternative story of our motives, a motive that we are less willing to admit, but that makes more sense of our behavior. If you write a book just in education and you say education isn't about what it seems to be about, people hold that theory to a pretty high standard. They apply the rule, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and whatever you presented just doesn't meet that standard. If you think that most things we do, we do for the usual reasons we say, and then in some particular area you say, well, in this area, we're just all wrong about why we do things. That sounds really weird. Why is it that we would be so strange in this one area to just be completely wrong about why we do things? But if I can show you 10 different areas, uh, big areas of life, and show you that in all of them plausibly we're wrong about why we do things, then that might make it more plausible that, in fact, we're just wrong a lot and then make it more plausible in each area that we're wrong. So I think that's the choice of scope for the book is to say we are wrong a lot about a lot of things, and you aren't really willing to believe that for just one thing at a time. I have to convince you that overall across your life you're wrong a lot. Well, and what's – What's so interesting is you're not only claiming that 
we are sort of deceptive in terms of what we tell other people, but that we deceive ourselves, that we actually, we're actually lying to ourselves or we believe our own phony motives sometimes. And that's, that's a pretty, um, that's a pretty crazy level of, (laughs) of like games that our brains are playing with ourselves. What, what is the, What's the utility of that? Why do why would we want to be deceived, or what is the benefit? I guess. But I know a lot of your book focuses on kind of the the evolutionary impact of this. But what are some of those things? What what's advantageous about believing our own bullshit? Really. So just to be clear, there have been many books over the last decades where talking about self-deception and how people are prone to that and how they don't know their own motives in psychology and related areas. We're not at all original there. Where we're more original is connecting that to our social institutions. Most of those books focus on our personal lives. You might be self-deceived about loving your wife or whether you enjoy being with your children, et cetera. But most of that just never talks about uh, the implications of that for our larger social institutions like medicine or school or religion. And that's what distinguishes our book. But we do in the first third try to review all this standard material about why humans might be self-deceived. And the key point is that humans have norms. The, the, there's a quote in there. I can't remember who it was from. I think it was from an, another book. But it was something to the effect of our brains are not just for informational gathering or maybe our brains gather information and then instantly destroy it. Um, and this idea of kind of hiding things from ourselves. Um, and it was really, really well illustrated in some of the research on people with the, the hemispheres of their brain are not speaking split, with each other are split, split brain patients. Yes. Yeah. T- tell, can you tell uh, our listeners so just are, a couple of these examples? These are now 50 year old results. We've known this for a long time, uh, but there were once upon a time people whose two halves of the brain had been cut apart. Uh, they did this for a medical reason that we no longer do, I think. But these two halves of the brain don't talk to each other directly. Each half controls one half of the body. So each half gets input from one ear and one eye and controls one arm and one leg. Now, you can separate these two halves of the body in terms of letting them only see and hear different things. And then you can take one half of the brain and you can say to it, stand up. And then it will use that ear to hear that and use its leg to push up. And then you can ask the other half of the brain, why did you get up? Now, the honest answer would have to be, it doesn't know. It's not getting the information from the other half of the brain, but that's just not what happens. Consistently, people make up a a reason. They might say, I wanted to get a Coke. And that shows you that our brains are set up to habitually make up explanations for our behavior and make them up somewhat randomly if we don't actually know. Of course, usually our brain halves are connected, and so we do have a lot more information about why we do things. But in some sense, the conscious part of our brains, the kind that talks to you and the kind that you're thinking with right now, it's not the part of your brain that's in charge. It's more the part of your brain that serves the press secretary role. Its job is to look at what the rest of your brain does and make up stories about the reason. Now, if you think about the president's press secretary, the press secretary doesn't actually know why the president does most things. They're not in on most of those meetings, making decisions. But their job is to make excuses for it and to make up explanations for what the president does and to make those sound like good explanations. They're looking for ways to spin what the president is doing to make it sound good. And that's what the conscious part of your brain is doing. It is watching what you're doing all the time and trying to manage a set of explanations for what you're doing that make you sound like the best person they can. And that tends to include good motives. A lot of our social norms are about motives. So if I hit you accidentally, that's fine. If I hit you on purpose, that's not at all fine. So whether hitting you or not is okay depends on my motives for for hitting you. And so our motives are central to our norms. And because we are so worried about other people uh, accusing us of norm violations and trying to be ready to defend ourselves, we are constantly trying to work on a story of why each thing we did was for the very best of motives. Yeah, you know, the I mean, besides the, you know, being able to live with yourself by believing your (laughs) your own dubious story of motives and the fact that if you believe it, it's easier for you to convince others, um, you know, of your, your true motives. There was also something in the book about the kind of the value of, in terms of the, the, I don't know, risk reduction, I guess, 
a vagary or coded speech or double meanings or not just explicitly saying what we actually mean. And this was everything from, you know, codes and symbols used to, uh, to, you know, make sure that you didn't get, you know, busted. If you're a mobster and you're on the phone, you're not going to say, go, you know, shoot this guy in the head. You're going to say, you know, take care of this guy. Um, but laughter and there's, there's kind of like this element of, language speech direct speech has almost too much precision for certain uses and i actually found that to be a really fascinating kind of i don't know an an additional layer of reasons for our inability to just directly explicitly state what we actually mean well the key idea is that we're trying to avoid norm enforcement we're trying to avoid people accusing us of violating norms but that process is a lot easier because other people aren't trying very hard to enforce the norms. <laughs> it's a key thing to notice here. So we give the example of police who have the law they're supposed to enforce of arresting people drinking alcohol in public. They don't really want to enforce this law. They've got other things they have as their priorities. But if they see somebody drinking in public, they feel obligated to arrest them. So people who drink alcohol in public have the easy excuse. They just put the bottle in a paper bag and drink straight out of the paper bag. Now, it's not like that's fooling the police. It's not like they don't know that that must be alcohol if you're drinking out of a paper bag in public. But it gives them the excuse to ignore it because they aren't forced to admit that they saw it. And that's the kind of norm enforcement that's happening all around us that we're trying to evade by being not fully aware of our motives. Uh, Yes, if other people were watching our behavior carefully and uh, looking for the best explanation of our motives, usually they could figure it out. It's not like it's that hard. But... We don't need it to be that hard uh, because they're not really trying. As long as we give them a fig leaf excuse of what they can attribute our behavior to, they're happy to do that because they're usually not very interested in enforcing these norms. Why do you think we feel so scandalized when someone makes explicit, you know, whether it's the we all know what's in that brown paper bag or when a politician gets up and totally BSs some, you know, answer instead of just saying like, and we all, we know they're lying. They know we're lying, but we all feel very comfortable with that. But we feel very scandalized when someone like strips it right down. Well, the obvious analog is clothes on our bodies. Look, we all know that underneath our clothes, we're naked, (laughs) right? (laughs) And we all know that with a few exceptions, none of us are that pretty under our clothes. (laughs) We we know that, but it's fine because we don't have to see it. And if we all stand in a room naked, we will feel embarrassed and awkward, even though we all knew roughly what we must look like under our clothes. So it's the same sort of thing socially. We may all roughly know what's going on in our social behavior, but actually having to acknowledge it and admit it is awkward because now somebody may quote us on that and somebody may recant, recount the story of when we admitted it. And uh, we don't want to be vulnerable to that. Yeah, it's almost there's almost like you know, being a certain thing or doing a certain thing isn't so bad, but being accountable for it is something that because there's sort of an unknown element to the outcomes that that's where it gets a lot more costly. And so it's it's, sure. Yeah. It's like flirting is a a great example. We talked about body language in one of our chapters. Uh, We flirt a lot. Okay. (laughs) And in flirting, uh, we are communicating indirectly our interest or willingness and our uh, possibilities, but we would be very uncomfortable with saying those things straight out loud. Uh, If we said them straight out loud, we could be quoted on saying it and maybe we're not supposed to be flirting with someone or if we said it out loud, we might get an out loud rejection and have the public record of having us being rejected. Uh, Those are all awkward things we avoid by just flirting with our bodies and not using words. You know, you're um, the, the idea of the press secretary, which I love, by the way, I think that's such a colorful description. And there was a, there was a quote in there about, um, the, your brain is not the, the king. Your brain is the creepy guy standing next to the king saying, yes, sire <laughs> to every decision. Um, but it, it reminded me, cause it's, it's kind of this idea of, of almost two, two minds, you know, you're sort of, I don't know if you want to call them conscious or, and subconscious, but it reminded me of uh, two books that I really liked. One, um, The Inner Game of Tennis, which is very much sort of a, you know, personal growth development and, uh, you know, how to like become a high achiever, basically. Um, and The Act of Creation by Arthur Kessler, which is sort of like, you know, dissecting the the create the eureka moment in the human brain. And both of them focus on 
this idea of you have these kind of two brains, the subconscious and conscious. And, and once you know that, you can kind of harness the power of the subconscious or, or use it use it to more deliberately almost or, or trust it in a way to, to kind of you know guide you where you can't with your conscious mind because of all these biases and things. You didn't really, you did a little bit in the conclusion, but the main focus of this book wasn't so much what, how you can practically apply this insight sort of on an individual level, but have you personally found benefit in you know, utilizing this awareness of the elephant in the brain, or I guess what are the, the benefits you've found from, from being aware of this as well as what are the costs? Because there are costs to sort of waking up to some of these things. Right. The, the key difference I'd say about our book is we go to the social critique. We are not just talking about individual personal lives and how that affects you and your life. We're talking about how that affects larger social institutions we share with each other, like school and medicine and politics and religion. And that's my focus on what to do with all of this. So my attitude is that I should focus on other people, the rest <laughs> of the world, and try to understand them and their behavior and figure out the typical motives behind their behavior. And then if necessary, if I question is my own motives, I should just assume I'm mostly like them. Now, maybe I'm not, but maybe I don't really know enough and not capable of figuring out the differences. So I can check some of these things against my own behavior, but I should mostly be checking it against typical human behavior. So the payoff for me is then when I try to think about how to reform education or medicine or politics, et cetera, I have a good grounding of what's really going on. If you took education, for example, and you thought it was about learning the material, which is what most people say, if you come up with a reform that helps people learn the material faster, what you'll find is that people are not very interested in that reform because at some level they know that's really not what school's about. School is really more about uh, showing off, being smart and conscientious, uh, learning uh, cultural habits and connections, et cetera. Uh, and so your work trying to reform education will go wrong if you're missing the basic point of education. And to me, that's the big payoff here as a social scientist, understanding human behavior better so that I can better analyze what's going on and better recommend changes. I'm not very focused personally on understanding myself better or changing my own behavior. Ha, ha, but certainly, because I want to get into those social things. I want to talk more about a couple of those specifically. You have certainly had some costs, I would guess, to being you, you mentioned this a little bit in the book to being somebody who's intrigued by these kind of human biases and digging into them. I mean, just like somebody who, you know, once you sort of, let's say, understand, you know, public choice theory or something, you're, you're no fun at a dinner party of people who are really all about the, you know, the intentions of government policy, for example. Um, you're kind of like, I don't know, do you ever, <laughs> do you ever right. find yourself being like a rain on the parade? <laughs> well, we economists have a number of ways in which we see ourselves as, you know, frank, as, uh, honest about motives relative to other people's idealism, and public choice is certainly one of those areas. But even we economists are usually pretty idealistic about a lot of other areas of life. So most economists who study education are actually relatively uncomfortable with the idea that education is mostly about signaling. Most people, economists who study medicine, uh, tend to assume that medicine is about health. Uh, most economists, even who study politics, they might think there are effects that are reducing uh, the effectiveness of politics, but they still analyze it as if the point of it was to try to produce better policies. And so I think saying that for many of these areas, just the whole point is different than what we said is some of it a downer, even for economists who have thought themselves <laughs> as relatively cynical. Economists really aren't as cynical as they think. So the, the, the dismal scientists, your stuff is too dismal even for them sometimes. Huh? <laughs> to some degree. Um, well, let's, let's talk about a few of these specific examples. You briefly mentioned um, education. The, the one that really struck me the most, and maybe because I've, I'm more familiar with the signaling theory of education, but that was really fascinating was medicine. Talk to me a little bit about the the findings um, of yourself and, and others, um, what's really going on when we consume medical treatment? Now, medicine is probably going to be the surprise that's the biggest for most people who read this book. And people who are listening to this podcast, if they haven't heard about it before, will not be believing my initial claim. <laughs> and that's what I should expect. Um, that is, it's a surprise. And so you need to be shown an, a bunch of evidence before you're convinced 
that you should think about medicine differently than you do. But let's go, let's go through it. So the usual story we give about medicine is that it makes you healthier. People are usually healthy. Sometimes they get sick. Uh, doctors are people who can help you get better, but they know a lot of specialized things and they're expensive. And so we need insurance and we need some sort of regulation. And that's the usual story about medicine. And that's a story that animates and st structures almost all our policy discussions about medicine. Uh, almost all the analysis that economists do are based on the assumption that the whole point is to make you healthier. There's a number of puzzles that are at odds with this basic picture and probably the most straightforward one and, and the biggest one is just that there's very little correlation between medicine and health. That is, when we look at geographic regions where people consume more medicine, the people there are not healthier. And we have a limited number of randomized experiments where we've made some people consume more medicine because we lowered the price for them and other people consume less. And again, the people who consume more medicine are not healthier. And this is a relatively consistent result. Uh, that's one of many puzzles. We also know that we have a lot of other things that affect health a lot, that we see big relationships with health, uh, exercise, air quality, sleep, social status, uh, religion, social connections. There's a lot of big, strong connections with health and these other things. And people have very little interest in pursuing those connections. They're not at all animated in imagining policy reforms that would get people to exercise more uh, or have more social connections, say, in order to be healthier. But they're really animated about medicine. They care a lot about fine details of medical policy, uh, which is puzzling if the point was health because uh, medicine has very little relation to health. In addition, we find that uh, people are surprisingly uninterested in private information about the quality of medicine. Uh, we have data, for example, when some people were about to undergo heart surgery where they faced at least a 1% risk of dying in the surgery, and they were offered information about different hospitals and doctors in the area near them and which had different rates of death under doing the surgery. You might think that would be very valuable information to know in order to help you avoid a 1% or higher chance of dying. But it turned out that only 8% of these people were willing to pay even $50 to find out this information. <laughs> and when they were actually given this information, it didn't really affect their behavior. And so... This is a consistent result. We see that people have very little interest in the details of medicine and its quality. They mostly just want to trust a doctor or trust uh, some system to make these choices and not really think about it. And, and it's not the claim is not just that, you know, this is, um, you know, laziness or rational, you know, rational ignorance or um, or or even. Well, if you tell a story about someone you know dying, people remember that more than statistics. So it doesn't it doesn't mean as much to them. All those might play a, a part, but you're you're actually claiming that people are doing basically conspicuous consumption of healthcare. That right. I, I actually care less about my odds of dying than I do about my, about my odds of you thinking that I neglected to to do everything that I could to survive because that would show that I care maybe about my family and, um, you know, my children by, by, by taking every treatment that was offered, even if that treatment resulted in me dying, uh, people are not going to think less of me for trying, so to speak. Um, so I'm going to do the things that, that give me that appearance. Is that kind of the, the, the claim? An analogy would be Valentine's chocolates. <laughs> so, uh, if you have a loved one on Valentine's, you may want to buy them some chocolates. Now, as we all, all know, the official purpose of chocolates is nutrition, right? It's food. And uh, so if you thought you were just trying to help them by giving them food, uh, you might first ask, how hungry are they before you decided how many chocolates to give them? But of course, that's not how we choose that. We instead ask ourselves, how much do I have to give and of what quality so that somebody who didn't care as much as me wouldn't be willing to give this much? <laughs> We're trying to distinguish ourselves from them who don't care as much. We're trying to show that we care with our chocolates. And in addition, when we think about what brand of chocolates to buy or type, we are mostly focused on common signals of quality rather than private signals. That is, if I happen to privately know that this isn't that good a kind of chocolate, but everybody says it's a good kind of chocolate, I might expect you to give me credit for this chocolate, even if you even privately know it's not such a good kind of chocolate because you might not expect me to know. Hmm. 
That is, in order to get credit for a gift, we have to appeal to common opinions about quality rather than private opinion about quality. And you might even notice that on Valentine's Day, some people don't have a loved one to give them chocolate, and they sometimes buy their own chocolate and leave it around their desk. <laughs> because they like the appearance that somebody cares about them. They want to look like the sort of person somebody does care about, even if they have to buy it themselves. I have I have heard of people, you know, buying themselves flowers and things like that. Um, yeah, that's that's a really good that's a really good illustration that it's that that social signaling in the in the section on advertising, which is you know sort of about conspicuous consumption of of consumer goods. Um, you know, you're making a similar a, a similar claim that people are <clears throat> people want to you know own things that have a certain status uh, signal to them. So if, if advertisements for a luxury car, you know, sort of make less wealthy people feel jealous, that actually enhances the the demand from wealthy people because they want to, they want something that comes with that status um, or, you know, things that are supposed to be, you give people a blind taste test and you tell them that one of these wines is really expensive and really they're all the same. They're going to tell you they like that one more. I have, my question on that one is to what extent let's let's stick with the wine one to what extent is is that our brains deceiving ourselves into thinking that we enjoy the taste more enjoy the experience more because we want to be associated with high status things and to what extent is it possible that since our sensory experiences are subjective and heavily tied to our our brain that we actually did enjoy it more because we had these sort of better associative feelings created by the advertisements. Does that make sense? Sure. So our analysis is a distal cause analysis. That is, we're looking from a distance at what the basic causes of our behavior are. Looking from a distance, we aren't making commitments or choices about the mechanism that drives our choices. Hmm. And in different areas, for different people at different times, they are more or less aware of these motives and causes. Sometimes people are quite conscious that they're going to school to get a credential and they don't really care what they learned. <laughs> but at other times, people may well not be conscious that they're going to the doctor in order to show that they care or let other people show that they care about them. They may consciously think they're going there for their health. Uh, we are complicated creatures and uh, what exactly we're aware of when is complicated. And so it's simpler for us to just analyze the basic causes of our behavior rather than to analyze the mechanisms that that make us in any one context uh, do one thing or another. So it's certainly quite plausible that in many of these cases, we forget if we ever were consciously aware of what the ultimate explanation is and we start to feel and act as if we directly like the things that we are doing for the reasons we say. So we may well uh, feel like we're getting healthy at the doctor. We may well uh, enjoy the taste of food that we have decided is high status food. Uh, there can be, yes, complicated uh, and sometimes direct ways in which uh, our mind is just rearranged to make us do the things that are good for us uh, without us being very aware of why. Hmm. So, yeah, I, I've always I've always wondered that with placebo, um, you know, studies that reveal the placebo effect. And it's supposed to be this kind of like, gotcha moment, everyone's a, a fool and a fraud. But there's an element to it that's like, well, if it works, it works. Like, like, if you feel better, uh, because you took a placebo, there's something like your mental state, your mood actually is a real quality of life improvement, <laughs> you know, so like, get me those placebo pills. <laughs> Right, although that may be counter to the reason that you're supposed to give for taking medicine. Uh, and so you might rather take medicine for the reason you're supposed to do it rather than that. It might not be okay in, in your culture to do things for placebo reasons, perhaps. True. You had a, you had a speaking of the, the norm, I know this is kind of jumping all over the place, but the, the cost of norm violations, there was a story early in the book about, a, was it a Maori um, right. villager. Could you tell that story? This is a story I think from Graeber's book debt, uh, that we liked, which is, uh, that in this area, uh, a person would wander, 
um, from you know fishing area to fishing area. And there was a norm that if somebody came up and asked you for some fish, uh, then you should give it to them, you know, uh, because that was the polite thing to do. Uh, but of course, you're usually not supposed to ask for very much unless you need it. <laughs> so there was this one guy who got in the habit of asking for a lot and asking for it often. And other people really couldn't bring themselves to say no individually. But what they could bring themselves to do was to talk with each other about what to do this about this and then kill the guy. <laughs> that was okay. But saying no was not. Uh, that's... that's how strong our sort of social norms can be. We, we feel that we need to follow the norms in each case. Otherwise, somebody will tell a story about how we're not good norm followers. But we also have norms by which we're allowed to get together and coordinate to decide if somebody's a bad person and punish them and even to the extreme of killing them. That's so amazing that, I, you know, the, I mean, and you see it in, in many other ways, if you kind of zoom out that I would be more comfortable, you know, killing you for violating the norm than I would violating the norm myself in order to alter, <laughs> alter your behavior. Um, there's sort of this, this sense in which keeping those norms in place is kind of like, you know, the highest thing or, or it takes precedence over over anything on the individual level. Is that is that just like species survival, um, you know, instincts that have evolved? Well, one of the interesting puzzles that we reflect on in the book is the fact that while chimpanzees and other primates have this very complicated social politics and they therefore have big brains in order to help them reason about this complicated social politics, once humans develop norms and weapons, we should be able to use those norms and weapons to enforce the norms uh, with language. And that should take away a lot of the advantages that other primates have from their complicated uh, politics. And if so, they wouldn't need such big brains in humans because we had this other way of dealing with conflict. But it turns out humans have the biggest brains of all. And if primate brains are mainly about figuring out the complicated coalition politics of who's with me and who's who's pretending to be with me and who might betray me, etc. Then what are these huge human brains for? <laughs> Which apparently don't need to manage all that complicated politics because we have these nice norms to deal with it. And the answer we suggest is, well, we pretend to follow the norms, but we evade and fail to follow them so often that we really need these huge brains to manage that whole process. So that's what your brains largely are for, is for thinking about uh, what you're doing and what norms it might violate and having excuses to, uh, to say why that wasn't such a bad thing. And I think if you'll notice, most of the time, most of us have in the back of our head a little story we're telling about ourselves, which is, I did this, and then I'm doing this, and I'm doing this for this reason. <laughs> and we're mostly spending a lot of our mental effort, energy making sure we always have a ready story to tell about what we're doing and why, and why it's not such a bad thing to be doing. <laughs> that That's such a fascinating idea that so much brain power is devoted to learning how to violate norms without appearing that we're violating norms. <laughs> it's cunning. And coordinating to do this with other people. That is, uh, we don't just do this individually. We do this collectively together. For example, we might say one thing and then we use our eye, our eyes and our smirks to say another thing about it. <laughs> While our words might find very sincere and officially the sort of thing you're supposed to say, the other body language and expressions we're giving are saying the opposite. They're saying that's just silly. And by smirking with each other and, and grinning to each other, we are communicating to each other, well, we're not going to take that seriously. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing you're supposed to do, but you and I know we're not right here going to treat that the way they think you should. And that's something we often use to bond to each other, this, this way we communicate to each other that we're not going to take this outside rule seriously here among us. I, I almost wonder if, you know, if someone were restricted, I mean, maybe somebody who is, who is deaf or, or mute, um, to only, only interpreting body language, <laughs> what, what the world would look like, what humans, other humans would look like compared to, uh, where we've got these layers of language and then body language, which I think we're often interpreting subconsciously, but is, is, you know, probably more, more telling of accurate motives. Although, you know, to function fully in our society, you need all the different levels. Yeah. You need to be able to hear the words and see what they're saying and see the body language and see what it's saying. And if you only have one of the channels, you're going to be missing out on a lot in either side. 
talk a little bit about the section on religion. Um, and well, no, go ahead. I'll just, I'll just leave it open-ended. I'll let you, I'll let now, you give us for, the, the for most readers uh, who aren't very religious. Uh, this is one of the easiest sections for them to swallow uh, because uh, they look often at religious people and say, well, that's just crazy. <laughs> you know, you say you believe in these supernatural powers uh, for these various evidential reasons and, and they you know, just don't seem remotely sufficient to convince anybody of that. And so, uh, most non-religious people have to scratch their head and say, well, what's going on? Now, often people will just attribute it to being stupid or fools. And they're saying, well, you know, not everybody's as smart and logical as you and I. And so some people do really buy these stupid stories and believe all these strange things. And what a sad situation for them. And wouldn't it be nice if the world could be better and people weren't so foolish as to be tricked into these silly beliefs? But that story doesn't work very well. Uh, with the fact that when we look at religious people versus non-religious people in, in various ways, we consistently see the religious people just doing better in almost every way in their life. They're healthier, they're married longer, they take fewer drugs, they're happier, they earn more money, they live longer. Um, just all the way, all the different ways you might want something to work, religion seems to work for people. So there's something at odds with the story that you know, it's just a stupid mental mistake they're making that's uh, producing this behavior because why would that make everything work better for them? Uh, again, uh, like in many chapters, we're just inheriting uh, a social science literature and, and summarizing it. And there's a large literature on the social science religion where it looks for what religion could be doing for people, finds the relatively obvious answer that religion brings groups together. When a group has some apparently arbitrary rules about how you're allowed to dress or talk or eat, uh, then when you follow those rules, uh, that group can see that you're more committed to them and uh, more trust you to rely on each other in that group. And the willingness to believe strange sounding things as if it was true is another strong sign of a commitment to a group. And you'll notice most of the things that religious people believe don't actually affect their personal lives and behavior that much. But even when they do, it could be a costly signal of uh, loyalty to that group. And this is the standard story about religion and social science, and it does seem to work. Uh, that is, for example, religions that ask more of people, uh, that demand more loyalty and commitment and costs, they do actually seem better able to help each other in times of trouble and to uh, trust each other more. The uh, the idea that people behave in these ways, they, they go through these, you know, rituals or traditions and go to church every Sunday or travel to Mecca because they believe in these sort of, you know, propositions about the, the nature of reality and, and God or whatever. You, you kind of point out that both, you know, atheists and theists alike, when they debate, it's all about these propositions, assuming that this is why people are joining these religions and, and engaging in these activities, because they believe, you know, the various theological claims. And it's such an interesting way to turn it on its head. And I think a tremendous amount of, of truth to it, you demonstrate that the belief actually is like, in a way, the cost, or if you want to sort of have the benefits of being part of this social unit and have this sort of community then you're gonna you're gonna come up with this belief, or you're gonna you're gonna adopt this belief um, because that's sort of what's required to be a part of that group. And and I grew up in a in a you know very church church going family, very connected to the church and everything. And we, you know we always laugh. Pretty much every kid who grows up in church gets to an age, maybe their late teens, where they start to you know take great pleasure in in mocking all the silliness and the things that whether or not they ever sort of leave the church or become an atheist you know, they're good at criticizing the sort of sillier aspects of the way that things are done. And one of those is that, you know, people will just ask you, you know, are you, are you going to church? Are you plugged into a local church? And as long as you say yes to that, they don't care. You could be like, well, the state of your soul, right? The things, the claims of the religion are not right. really, people actually don't get that concerned. They don't get into theological debates that much. They just want to know that you're that you have the appearance that you're during the sure. sermon, you're paying attention, <laughs> whether or not you agree. Most ancient religions uh, didn't really have many beliefs you had to follow. <laughs> you know, so in the Roman Empire before Christianity took over, 
uh, people had a lot of behaviors they were supposed to follow, but there really wasn't much in the way of beliefs that were supposed to go with those behaviors. There were just things you did to be good members of the religion. So that is actually a great segue to the, the politics section, which has a lot of similarity, especially when it comes to the sort of the more, the more costly the, uh, the ritual, the more that it shows your loyalty. Um, and, and politics is, is different than religion in many ways because I don't think it has quite the same like community benefits. But there is that element of you, you're not voting to ch- change an outcome of an election. You're, you're sort of doing it to signal to other members of your group that you're one of them. And then there's sort of that loyalty, the apparatchik uh, effect, as you talked about in the book. Could you, um, I guess, distinguish... What do you think is the main difference between what's going on with with involvement in politics versus involvement in religion? Well, in politics, uh, we have the sense that there are multiple coalitions of people and that you are showing loyalty toward one coalition relative to the other coalitions. Uh, Whereas religion, you're joining a community and then it's mostly within the community and people who are other other religions or non-religious are in a sense outside of your community. Now, you need to show that you are committed to your community and you aren't going to leave it, uh, but there's less contact with other people outside the religion, uh, usually with religion. Whereas in politics, you expect there to be more contact with people who have other politics. And so in politics, you're more trying to show that you're taking the side of your uh, coalition in contact with the other side Hmm. Uh, so that uh, when there's a vote, you're voting with your side against the other side, and we're going to see who wins the vote. Um, We prefer to associate with each other uh, when we share our politics. We prefer to date, uh, marry, to talk and work with people who have our political affiliations, so we are becoming more segregated. But we're very well aware that there are these other people out there who have different political views. And it's important that we show our loyalty to our views relative to those other people. And so we often talk about those other people and how they're wrong and why we're right. Uh, We do a lot less of that in religion, talking about other religions and why they're wrong. We mostly are talking about our religion and what we're doing inside our religion. That's that's actually a really fascinating distinction because I was trying to I was trying to think to myself like what is the key difference here and I didn't I I couldn't couldn't clearly differentiate but that's a really good distinction. So you you mentioned something this is sort of a, at the nexus of I guess both religion and politics but you mentioned um, you know polls that have been done and I've heard this many times that um, you know an atheist would have the hardest time being elected president when you ask people you know someone who's gay or even muslim or groups that are typically considered well outside of the mainstream in terms of voters people would be more likely to an ele- elect a president in, from you know sort of one of those affiliations or groups than um someone who's an atheist now my question for you is like isn't it isn't this more of one another layer of self-deception because because well for one it's a poll so it's hard to know what what people would actually do but um but two take the current president Donald Trump i i don't think if people are honest with themselves i don't think anybody really believes that he's religious but as long as he says he is everyone seems to be okay with that <laughs> so it's maybe it's not so much being religious, but saying you are is kind of that. Do do you think that's a fair um, description of what's going on in terms of politics and religion? Well, in an awful lot of these areas, we pay a lot more attention to actions than what people say, and which makes sense. People actions are often a more credible signal because they're more expensive. Uh, Talk is cheap. So it makes sense to look at what people do more than what they say in, in a wide range of areas. And in many areas, the, the important thing is just to go along with doing the thing you're supposed to do, whether you do it for conformity reasons or for some other reason is less important usually than that. You just do the thing you're supposed to do. So uh, you're supposed to say you're going to school to learn the material and you find it fascinating. But the important thing is that you go to school and get the degree. Uh, if you admit to people privately that you just wanted the degree and you didn't find the subject that interesting, they might think a little less of you, but far less than if you don't get the degree. <laughs> So the, yeah, so it's, it's similar to, I guess what, what we're saying about, I guess I was falling into the trap of assuming that religion is, a, is, starts with belief again, because if it, if it doesn't, then it's really, you know, a president who goes and attends a prayer service 
no one really cares what they believe <laughs> as long as they do the things that a that a right. believer would do. Okay. It's also interesting, as you mentioned, that people would find it hardest to vote for an atheist. While there are different religions and people are want to be sure that you're with their religion rather than other religions, there's also a sense in which all religious people have some things in common that they all trust each other more as a result of. Huh. If you're part of any religion and you have some devotion to a religion, that makes you a certain sort of person and makes you somewhat more trustworthy to another person who also has that sort of religious attitude, even if it's a different religion. It's the people who have no religion that feel the most alien and untrustworthy to you because they don't have uh, this repertoire of, of behavior and, and resources to draw on. So on the education topic, the, you know, the, the main thrust, and you offer a few additional um, explanations beyond just the pure um, sort of buying a, a credential, which signals that you're hireable to employers. You offer also the kind of uh, domestication that this process itself kind of makes humans who are more capable of um, typical office work or factory work, and that's attracted to employers. So there is some sort of forming going on. Um, but you know, the, the basic thesis, which is very in line with, and, and you explicitly mentioned this Brian Kaplan's work on education, that it's not to learn, but it's to get a stamp that says you're the type of person who's sort of, you know, capable of, of kind of going through this system and that that's what people are buying. And that helps them sort of on the job market. When I read and and I largely agree with that, which is, which is, a big part of the inspiration for um, the the company that I launched, Praxis, but I've actually come to put a little less weight on that kind of pure employability signal, and a little more weight on basically your thesis in the section on medicine. When I read that, I, I that immediately struck something with me because when we talk to so many young people that apply to our apprenticeship program or that go through it, for most of them. It's, it's level one is getting people to admit that college is not about learning. And then it's like, well, I have to do it to get a job. But if you, if you scratch the surface there a little bit, most people outside of well-defined things like law and medicine, if you say, well, is that signal, what job do you want? Well, they say, I don't really know. Well, is that signal actually necessary to get that job compared to a signal that you could build on your own? And it's actually relatively easy to get most people to say, yeah, you're right. I could build a better signal if I spent a year studying this and I created something that demonstrates my skill level or I apprenticed. And so the signal, the signaling component is only part of it. I actually think a lot of it might be, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, similar to medicine for parents, especially they want to signal to other people how much they've sacrificed on behalf of their child's education as a way to, to show them that they care. Um, I think that's a really powerful component. And I grew up homeschooled and we used to face this a lot where parents would sort of, they would sort of look down on like, oh, you're homeschooling. Aren't you worried about your kids' social life? Like kind of question, are you being a bad parent for not, not so much, is it working, (laughs) but like, you know, it anyway. So I think that's a huge component. A lot of kids feel that pressure that like my mom cares less about my happiness and actually success in my career than she does the ability for her friends to think highly of her for spending a lot of money to send me to a (laughs) competitive school. Right. So I think the way to think about this, that, that brings these all into the same framework is to realize that almost all of these choices we're making have audiences, but then most of those audiences have other audiences behind them. There's this <laughs> this nested circle of audiences that goes out to the distance. And so uh, you might say, do something instead of going to school. And there might be an employer that you could convince, uh, yeah, that is as good a signal as school as uh, school would have been. And it makes me as willing to hire you personally. However, um, if your parents want to brag about you being a successful person, uh, they're going to be bragging to audience people who don't know this special signal and why it's different. And so your parents might rather see the school signal as something everybody understands. Similarly, this person who might hire you, they might believe you're as good, but they might have other people looking over their shoulder. They may have bosses or colleagues uh, or customers who will look at you and say, well, but you don't have a degree. How can they know you're any good? And so, Each of us are making these choices in the context of other people who are looking over our shoulder. And as we go away from the context, those people who are judging us know less and less about what's going on. 
And so even if one person could have another signal that personally to them was just as persuasive as, say, school, it gets much harder for people farther away from them to have that signal that's as good as school. And so those people far away and their judgments are going to be really pushing for the standard signal that everybody knows about. Yeah, that's, it's amazing how powerful that can be. I mean, we, I've, I've met people who are in a certain circle, you know, incredibly successful. Everyone respects them. But they still think badly of themselves because when they go back home, you know, like let's say you're in Silicon right. Valley, being a high school dropout or a college dropout, it might actually be a signal of prestige if, if you're like a tech, you know, tech whiz. But then you go back home to Iowa and it's like, so how come you never finish school? <laughs> you know, um, there's a there's a contextual right. nature to those. Um, another, another example is in an academic department. Uh, there's the chairman of the department and people outside of academia think of them as the boss. And so they think everybody in a department wants to be chair because they want to be the boss. But in fact, in academia, people aren't really that eager to be the chairman of the department and the chairman doesn't get that much more respect than other academics. But often if you want to impress people outside of academia, then you might want to be the chairman because that looks like the boss to them. That's, it's amazing. The, the, how often we're willing to sacrifice sort of immediate utility for our stated goals in order to get strangers that we've never met <laughs> to think highly of us. Um, so I, I want to kind of finish with this because I found this really interesting, the idea of when these when these norms or signals change. And I was thinking about it because I, in one section of the book, I can't even remember which one, it might have been about consumption. You mentioned that at one point, and I did not know this, uh, lobster was considered like poor people food. And there was even a, a law in New England about, you, you know, not feeding prisoners lobster more than a couple times a week because it was considered cruel and humane, like feeding people rats. And and that flipped due to the scarcity and maybe other factors. I'm not exactly sure, but lobster is considered very prestigious now. And it got me thinking about specifically in education and medicine, there's a possibility that some of these signals are actually reversing. So with medicine, for example, um, my my sister had a home birth for her a long time ago for one of her children and that was kind of like people would sort of look at you like you are so callous and cold there's so much risk in giving birth at home and isn't that like dangerous you're aren't you a bad mother today it's more and more common i still wouldn't say it's mainstream but it's more and more common at least in certain circles for people to look at you if you have a home birth as like you're the more caring parent because that's harder you went, you went, you did the research you're, and I think unschooling and homeschooling have had a similar flip from when I was a kid. Now, when, when we tell people that we homeschool our own children, they almost have a bit of like a, like a jealousy or they're on the defensive where they feel like they need to justify that they're not bad parents just because they send their kids to school. So I almost think that like, there might be a reversal going on in what signals what. There's a huge amount of inertia in signals, but there's also a scope for change. And so uh, this, there's a lot of things we want to show off about, and there's a lot of ways to show them off. And so in any one society, which things are associated as signals of which other characteristics is somewhat arbitrary in terms of the history of that society. Uh, so that means you can't just arbitrarily change these things. <laughs> you often have to go along with whatever the usual sig signal is, like going to school to show how smart you are in our society. Um, whereas over time, it's quite possible that these things will change. Uh, that doesn't mean they'll change in better directions necessarily because the process <laughs> that's changing things isn't like some panel of experts who makes the decision about what to do better. Uh, but nevertheless, we will uh, eventually uh, change to something else. I, I've always liked to point out that uh, when we try to show off how, um, you know, even in, in conversation with other people and being just around other people, we try to show them how smart and rich and um, and healthy we are. And we have the traditional ways to show these things. We try to show how smart by having a big vocabulary and being witty. We, we try to show um, how healthy we are by being energetic. Uh, we might try to show how rich we are by the car we drive or the clothes we wear. These are ancient signals, and we continue to use them to show these things off. In the modern world, we could, in principle, show these things off with an IQ test and a bank statement and a doctor statement <laughs> showing us that we, you know, more credibly and, and reliably that we are rich and healthy and um, smart. But these new signals have not displaced the old ones. 
Uh, you do not. You will, it will not go well in your next party <laughs> if you bring along your bank statement and your IQ test as a way to convince people <laughs> of your good qualities. Uh, don't do it, really. Even though, in principle, it should be a more effective signal, the mere fact that you're doing it makes you weird, and that's a pretty bad signal. Yeah, it's it's funny. Sometimes, it, you know, if a if a signal is one of maybe prestige or one that's hard to get, like a college degree, perhaps, once it if it becomes too easy or too many people start to get it, then there's almost like this first mover advantage or sort of outsider advantage to kind of signaling that you're not one of those people. And one of the things I've I've noticed with this is the it seems really popular right now, sort of authenticity or transparency sort of articles about like how I'm a failure, how I failed, all the things I'm bad at. <laughs> you know what I mean? That has like a, okay, well now everybody's bragging about themselves. The new way to that, it's, it's, it's hard to stand out. The new way to get attention is to talk about your failures, you know? <laughs> well, sure. That's the humble brag. <laughs> yes. Uh, and of course, you know, we have people who dress down, but still dress down with the most exquisite taste. <laughs> right. And so, Oh, in many areas, we have this game where we try not to look like we're showing off. Uh, and so we try to back off from the most obvious way to show off, but we're still trying to show off in subtler ways. And in some ways, that makes it harder for other people who are outside of our world to see what's going on. Uh, like my, my colleague, Tyler Cowan, uh, noted that back in the day when everybody wore a, a pinstripe suit at the office, that if you were from a poor social class, you still might do well at the office once you learned that you're supposed to buy a pinstripe suit. Now today, since we don't have this pinstripe suit standard, we have a subtler standards of dress, but still rich people dress differently than poor people. Now it's harder for a poor person to do well at the office. They can't just buy the pinstripe suit. They have to judge all these subtle clothes that people are giving off and their signals, and they're just going to get it wrong. And that means a poor person who's still doing very well at the office will be seen as a person from a lower social class because they just don't quite know how to dress right. And it's, it's, a, dis it's a disadvantage for them now relative to the past when the, the classic pinstripe troop would let a poor person actually be accepted among um, much, you know, higher class people at the office. And that, that kind of uh, that kind of speaks to the the theory from the, the beginning of the, the evolution of the brain that it's it sort of gets ever more complex to navigate these constant sort of skirting of the norms and, and um, you know, interpreting how to win within a given social game. It's very complicated. <laughs> so let, let's finish with, if you want to give me, what would you say are like uh, in any of the areas you covered in the book, your top three recommended reforms based on the knowledge of what's going on, whether it's, you know, the, the inefficiency of medicine or education or art or politics what are some some policy changes, whether they're you know in the form of legislation or just in you know changing um, habits and traditions that you think would would yield the greatest uh, returns? Well, I like to start the whole story of why I went down this path with the observation that when I was in physics and computer science, uh, I noticed that people were really eager to find better ways of doing things, but it was hard. Uh, but when they found them, they could get a lot of attention. And then when I started looking in social science, I noticed that there appeared to be these really big wins that people hadn't adopted or, or um, tried to implement whereby we could all be much better off. And they were easier to find and they were easier to explain and based on simpler sort of uh, mechanisms and theories. And that seemed to be a really big win. So that's one of the reasons I went into social science. And over time, I came to realize that the main reason why it's so easy to find big wins in social science is because very few people are interested in actually adopting these proposals. <laughs> so that's the reason why I might say in many of these areas, it's relatively easy to come up with a policy recommendation by which the world would be better off. The hard thing to do is to get anybody to be interested in endorsing or adopting those policy recommendations. That is, the existing policies are there in part because it looks, has the right optics to endorse those policies, even if they aren't very effective. So what I don't know how to do is to get people to care about how to change these policies to be more effective. Uh, that's what I think is the harder part. And as I say, as we say in the conclusion, uh, usually in economics, we face the question of how to design mechanisms or institutions to give people more of what they say they want. Whereas uh, the real problem is how to give people more of what they actually want while continuing to let them appear to be trying to get what they say they want. <laughs> 
it's a more complicated design problem, and therefore we should expect it to be harder. But then we have more hope that if we can design solutions to that, we will then uh, get more actual adoption of our proposals. So that's my long-winded introduction by saying, uh, sure, there are some easy ways to fix things. So for example, we subsidize a number of things according to a rationale whereby it's good for the world if they're subsidized. But in fact, uh, if the other reason that we offer is what's going on, it doesn't make as much sense to subsidize them. So it makes less sense to subsidize education or medicine uh, or even perhaps religion uh, if what they are about, or art even, if what they are about is uh, what we are suspecting them more actually about. So just backing off on subsidies would be a big win across a lot of these areas. Uh, but of course, because people want to talk about these as good things, they want to talk about them in ways that would presume that subsidizing them would be better. And so uh, it's hard to imagine how to get people to, say, cut back on subsidies of education without them publicly admitting that education is not so great. Maybe we could start a campaign like every every tax dollar that goes to education, a puppy dies, you know, something something like that. So we could well, still appeal to that. <laughs> over the years, I have had students who went off and were in the policy world and wrote a lot about the politics policy in medicine. And long ago, I told them, and they were convinced that medicine is not so useful for health. <laughs> but they are well aware that that's not the sort of thing you sh should say <laughs> and expect to keep your career in health policy. <laughs> so these students uh, have to keep talking about medicine as if it was all about this wonderful thing of medicine and trying to get people more of it or the, the right kinds of it, rather than talking about just getting everybody to do less. Because that's just not a winning policy. And, you know, presumably a lot of politicians also know these things. Uh, they know that they are not actually that effective, but they know what people want to hear. I have a whole different you know, discussions of how we could do politics better. I have this uh, proposal for a different form of government based on betting markets. And I think I have some strong arguments for why that might be more effective. And uh, it could also help with governance inside organizations. Uh, but again, it has problems with um, forcing people to be more honest about what they want and about where, where can we know. find the, the betting markets uh is that is that on your blog or personal website or you, you could look up the paper uh shall we uh vote on values but bet on beliefs uh also goes under the name futarchy uh Excellent. you can find that. that um but you know just more widely uh in a lot of areas i think we can come up with uh, mechanisms that would help improve things if we were willing to uh, admit to that. So academia itself, um, we talk about it as if it was for producing better research project progress. And I know of ways we could use prizes and betting markets to more directly buy research project progress. But I think that's really more of an excuse. And academia and the news media are more just an extension of ordinary conversation norms and our conversation behavior, which pretends it's about collecting and sharing information, but it's more about other things. And so uh, those other things are, in fact, achieved well in academia and the news media. And that's one of the reasons people are not so interested in uh, adopting these proposals that would get them more of the thing they say they want, which in this area is information. It's, it's, a, it's a challenging, I guess, paradox that the, you know, we, we don't want to know what we really want in a way. So trying to get what we, <laughs> trying to get what we really want, it requires self-knowledge that, that almost makes us less happy uh, in some cases. You know, I guess, I guess maybe the ignorance is bliss is sort of... <laughs> but, is so sort of our, our working assumption is, in fact, that um, we're built not to know these things for a reason. And so we're all else equal, if there's nothing else going on, you probably are made worse off to become aware of these things. Uh, becoming aware of these things is only valuable when we add something else to the mix. Uh, we add some stronger reason you might have to be aware of behavior, such as you're a manager or a salesperson, or you're a social scientist uh, or a policy reformer trying to understand the social world and make it better. So to, to close out, Robin, your book, The Elephant in the Brain, it made my life worse by revealing these biases to me, but I'm still going to give it a five-star review because it will make my life better by being a so being seen as somebody who is, you know, dispassionate and rational and associated with, with good thinkers such as yourself. <laughs> and we do discuss that in the uh, conclusion. We say, well, you could take the stance of being someone who's honest and forthright and willing to look things straight in, and see what they are and call a spade a spade. And we can help you with that signaling. There, there is a, you know, 
there is a, uh, a way to work that to your benefit as well. Hey, Robin, this was absolutely fascinating. I feel like uh, we could have gone down so many more rabbit holes almost endlessly here. Um, check out Overcoming Bias if, if you want to read more um, of Robin's musings, but definitely pick up The Elephant in the Brain. Um, really, really a fascinating book. And thanks so much for coming back on. Take care. You bet. Hey, I want to tell you about two other podcasts real quick. The first is called Forward Tilt. Check it out. Five to 10 minute episodes about specific ideas to improve your personal and professional life. Basic thoughts, uh, concepts, just a single one in each episode boiled down real quick. If you like that five to 10 minute format, check it out wherever it is that you subscribe and listen to podcasts called Forward Tilt pretty good if I do say so myself. The second one is called Office Hours. It's TK Coleman, frequent guest of this podcast, and myself, and we spend about 30 minutes every week answering specific questions from specific people. Could be you if you send us a question about success in the workplace, primarily primarily professional success for people sort of early in their careers, but it actually covers a pretty broad range. Anything from how to ask for a raise, how to impress somebody, how to know what kind of work to do, how to what to what to do when someone won't respond to your emails, anything like that. It's full of wit and wisdom that is characteristic of conversations with TK. Check out Office Hours and Forward Tilt if you like the kind of stuff on this show. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.